This morning we're going to finish, conclude our series in the book of Habakkuk, this tiny little prophetic book in the Old Testament. And I hope that you've found the series helpful so far um, and feel that you've got not just a better understanding of that book, those three chapters, but also begun to consider how it might affect your daily walk with God. Because that's really what this book is all about. It's about us developing our walk with God, getting to know him better. And so my prayer is that as you've looked at this incredible dialogue between Habakkuk the prophet and God the Almighty, that it's inspired you and changed you as you've allowed the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And so today we come to the last three verses of the book. And uh, one commentator describes these three verses as being one of the greatest expressions of faith in the Bible. Full stop. The whole Bible. I love that. So that's what we're going to look at today. And uh, I'm going to start by reading it. So if you've got your Bibles with you and you've managed to locate Habakkuk, then the last three verses, verses 16 to 19, go like this. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the oil f- olive fail, and the ye- fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. It's in the Bible, so we read it. On the February the 19th this year, 110 girls were abducted from their secondary school in Dapchi in Nigeria by Boko Haram. Five of them died during the ordeal. The remainder, about a month later, towards the end of March, were released. Except for 15-year-old Leah Sharibu. Leah was the only Christian girl in that group of girls. As she was about to be released, her captors ordered her to convert to Islam. She refused, so they kept her. Her classmates brought a message to the parents. I know it's not easy missing me, but I want to assure you that I am fine where I am. God is very close to people in pain. I am witnessing this now. I am confident that one day I will see your face again. Her dad said, I am very sad 
but I am also jubilant because my daughter did not denounce Christ. I am a proud father and call on her to remain faithful to God. Hold on to Christ, Leah. You are a heroine of faith. To my knowledge, she's still in captivity. As I read this story, I was challenged. There's a, it made the national press. Um, I read it through an open doors update. But this is the Guardian headline, which I think is phenomenal. But it challenged me, what is it that can make a 15-year-old girl accept continued captivity by refusing to denounce her faith? What would I do in that position? What is it that makes a father whose daughter's been kidnapped by this dangerous, militant Islamic group declare that he's jubilant at the situation? It makes no sense. Or does it? I wonder whether Habakkuk actually has a key for us getting an understanding of this particular situation as well. You see, he had an encounter with God that made him make or led him to make some crucial decisions. And so we're going to chart his experience. But hopefully that will serve as an illustration. But let's pray before we get into this. Lord God, we love you. (laughs) We love you. We love that this morning there are declarations of freedom over us. That whatever our circumstances, we can revel in the freedom that we have in you. And Father, as we turn now to your word, as we look at these closing few words of Habakkuk, this immense prophecy which we have been looking at these last few months. We pray, Father, that our hearts will be open to your spirit, that you would speak directly to each of us. And Father, that as we encounter you this morning, we will be changed. Amen. So the first thing I want to say this morning is that I think on the evidence of what Habakkuk says here, we need an encounter with God. We've seen that Habakkuk had an encounter with God. As we heard last week when Rob spoke to us, the bulk of chapter three is a declaration of the majesty, power and awe of God. Just going to reread some of that. So from verse three of chapter three, it says God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. We've kind of contributed a little bit to that this morning. His radiance is like the sunlight and his and (laughs) he has rays flashing from his hands. And there is the hiding of his power before him goes pestilence. After him, a plague comes. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. And so it goes on. Habakkuk is so overwhelmed by this vision that by the time we get to the end of it in verse 16, he's a mess. So we read that he trembles and quivers. 
We read that his lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into his bones. His legs tremble beneath him. From lips to legs, from head to foot, he is affected by his encounter with God. When was the last time you encountered God like that? Have you ever encountered God like that? Have I ever encountered God like that? In his majesty, as he reveals something of himself to us, it's an awesome thing to see God in resplendent glory. But it's not just Habakkuk who this happened to think about what he reports, how he was rendered speechless, how the colour drained from his face and his strength left him. And this is normally not what happens to me before breakfast. And John in Revelation chapter 1, he writes, When I saw him, that is the ascended Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. When we encounter the holy living God, there is often a revelation of who he is and then who we are in comparison. And I wonder if our view of God is too small. Do we too often reduce God to a manageable size that we kind of pick up and put in our Bible and put in our pocket? We talk a lot about the fatherhood of God, about the fact that we're adopted into his family, the fact that he loves us so incredibly, the fact that we can know intimacy with him. And all of that is absolutely true. And we should explore that. We should experience that. We should want to delve deeper into that. But I wonder if it's a little bit like an ocean. And when you think of the ocean, you might see a picture like this. Where we encourage children to go and paddle in the sea. That's Pembrokeshire, by the way. (laughs) Fill buckets with water. Splash around in rock pools. Jump over the waves. Pretend to be knocked over by waves this high or whatever it is. But our children must not grow up thinking that that is all there is to the ocean. They must appreciate this next image. That the ocean has incredible, uncontrollable power. Which can sink huge ships It can pound cliffs to pieces. It can create tidal waves that destroy whole towns and villages. It's the same ocean. It's the same water. And it's not that the ocean is kind of fickle or can't be trusted in that sense. It's simply that the ocean is way, way too complex for us to sum up in one image. Too vast. Too awesome. It is both a a gentle lapping round our feet and a fearsome tidal wave. It's both shallow enough to paddle in and vast enough to disappear into. How much more 
with God? How can we sum him up in one image? We can't. We can't do it. But unlike the ocean where you don't get those two things next to each other, not even in Pembrokeshire on a single day. God is everything that he is all of the time. So his love is a holy love and his holiness is entirely loving. And so a challenge for us is to think upon all that God is, not just our favourite attribute, the one that makes us warm inside. And I wonder if we emphasise sometimes the come and be intimate at the expense of stand and be amazed. Let me ask you, when was the last time you meditated on God's holiness or his power or his lordship or his judgment? Have we so domesticated God that he is more God almighty rather than God almighty? And maybe even as I'm saying these words, they're jarring with you because you're thinking, well, I suppose he is preaching from the Old Testament, so he has to give that angle. Well, I'm very sorry, but you're wrong. God does not change. He has the same hatred for sin today as he has always had. He is as holy now as he always has been. He loves you as much today as when he chose you before the very foundations of the earth were laid. He is God and we would do well to encounter him afresh. And tremble as Habakkuk trembled. You see, when we encounter God like Habakkuk encountered God, it changes our perspective. We see our position compared to God's. We see our concerns in relation to his concerns. We see our priorities in the light of his priorities. And Habakkuk's encounter with God enabled him to see things, not from the viewpoint of what he saw was in front of him, but from the vantage point of the end. He appreciates afresh the essential character and plans of God. And he is able to adjust his focus in the light of what he is facing. From just looking at that to considering the whole span of history. And this encounter with God, which I would argue we so desperately need again and again and again, leads Habakkuk to make two decisions in this passage. The first decision is, I will quietly wait. In verse 16. Let's just remind ourselves about when Habakkuk is prophesying and when he's actually saying these words, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. There's going to be a little potted history come up here. But Habakkuk is living in the nation of Judah. As we discovered at the start of the series, was probably, I made a bold claim, but I'm sticking with it two months later, during the reign of Jehoiakim. 
609 to 598 BC, so around 600 BC. The Assyrians have conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, Judah's sister nation, and it taken them off into Israel in 722 BC, so 100 or so years before. And from about that time, Assyria has actually ruled over Judah. They've still got a king, they're still an independent nation, but they're taking rules from elsewhere. The Assyrians are exacting taxes and that kind of thing. That's been going on for about 100 years. But the Assyrians now are under increasing pressure from the new rising kid on the block, the power of Babylon. The Babylonians came and in 612 BC destroyed Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Then they fought against the Assyrians at Karshemish in 605 BC, defeated them. The Assyrians are on the wane. They still hold a power base in Israel, but they're on the wane. And after the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians in 605, they then invaded Judah in 605 and again in 597. And then finally, in 586 BC, Jerusalem was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. The nation was defeated and they were carted off into exile. That hasn't happened yet for Habakkuk. So he is still in the position where he now knows, because God told him in chapter one, Behold, I am raising up the Babylonians. They can see, anyone with a kind of political radar will see that stuff is happening, that Assyria is weakening and this Babylon is rising. But the scandal of chapter one is that God is raising up the Babylonians. And he goes on to say that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places that are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses swifter than leopards, etc. Horsemen come galloping. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. All of them come for violence. They collect captives like sand. They mock kings. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble. They will sweep through like the wind and pass on. I mean, it is not pretty what is being anticipated in that prophetic word. It's going to be tough. And God has told Habakkuk that's what's going to happen. And so he sits there now trembling in front of God, knowing that ahead is this invasion by the Babylonians of Judah, of his country. And I don't think any of us in the room would blame him if his response in verse 16 was because I wait quietly for the day of trouble. Thinking the Babylonians are coming. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He says this. I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He looks beyond something that hasn't even happened yet to when God will come through. His eyes are fixed on the day of the Lord that will come on those who bring the Lord's judgment on his people. 
And this is so far ahead into the future that Habakkuk's not going to see it. He's not going to see that day. Judah goes off into exile for 70 years. Even if Habakkuk is a spring chicken in this age, he's going to be ancient by the time the exile is over. The Babylonians, you see, will become powerful and will rule the world. That's what's predicted. King Nebuchadnezzar is succeeded by his son, Belshazzar. Belshazzar, you know, writing on the wall fame. The end of that story is he's killed in his sleep by Darius the Mede. Not the Babylonian, Darius the Mede. And under him, the Persians swallow up the Babylonian Empire. And then there comes a king called Cyrus. And Cyrus sends God's people back to God's people's land. I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade this land. Habakkuk had his eyes fixed firmly on God's ultimate plans, not just on what he knew was round the corner. The revelation that God has given Habakkuk means that he now knows Judah will be invaded by this terrible war machine, the Babylonians. But because they don't honour God, they in turn will be judged. And they will be dealt with severely by the sovereign God. God won't allow them to get away with things indefinitely. There will come a time when the Babylonians will experience the judgment of God. So Habakkuk says, I will quietly wait. It's not a passive waiting. It's not a being resolved to whatever will be, will be. It's not a fatalistic thing. It's an active, hope-filled, faith-fueled anticipation of God bringing about his sovereign purposes in the whole earth. That's what he's waiting for. And that confidence that God is going to do that, I think, stems from Habakkuk's encounter with God. Because that gives him this vantage point which is way beyond his present circumstances. It enables him to know that what he sees now is not all that there is. And so he's fully confident in God's character, in God's justice, in God's sovereignty. And he is sure that God's people will remain God's people throughout a time of judgment and difficulty. I think we need that encounter. I think we need that encounter because it is so easy to get caught in the here and now and forget that we're part of God's eternal unfolding plans. So Habakkuk's encounter leads him to that first decision, I will quietly wait. But it leads to a second decision as well. In verse 18, he says, I will rejoice. This is where it gets happy. Habakkuk knows what is ahead, as we've read in chapter one earlier. He knows what the Babylonians are going to do to any nation they invade. Let me just read you a little bit of the historical account of what happened when the Babylonians showed up. 
Jeremiah. Incredible book. Jeremiah's words finish at the end of chapter 51. And chapter 52 is like an historical note. And it says this, I'm going to read bits from verse 4. Now it came about in the ninth year of his reign, that Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, before the awesome one who was to come. On the tenth day of the tenth month that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army against Jerusalem camped against it and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege till the eleventh year. So this was from the ninth year to the eleventh year, the city's under siege. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into and all the men of war fled and went forth from the city at night. But the king of the Babylonians pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Judah and all his army was scattered from him. They captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon and passed sentence on him. This is pleasant, this next bit. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also slaughtered all the princes of Judah. Then he blinded the eyes of Zedekiah. So the last thing he saw was his sons being killed. And bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. On the tenth day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the king of the bodyguard, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, that's the temple, the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every large house he burned with fire. So the army who were with the captain broke down all the walls around Jerusalem, carried away into exile some of the poorest people and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters and the rest of the artisans. And he left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. That is what is coming. And so when Habakkuk in verse 17 reads, writes this, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vine, it's because there are no plants alive. Though the yield of the olive should fail, there's no olive trees planted anymore. They've been chopped down to make siege works to lay against the city. Though the fields should produce no food, well, there's no one to plough the fields. And the flock, <laughs> you've got to be kidding, haven't you, that there's any livestock left. The Babylonians came, they saw, they conquered, they devastated the land, the nation and the people. There is nothing left at all. This is sheer, utter devastation of a people. A wrecking of the land. This is scorched earth, burnt villages, devastated towns. Nothing left. No one left. All around is death and destruction. Habakkuk knows this is what's coming. He knows that this is imminent. And he says, yet I will rejoice. You might have heard of this chap. 
Horatio Spafford. Okay, Uh, he was from Chicago. He had a very successful legal practice. His son died when quite young, um, just a short time before the great fire of Chicago in 1871. Spafford's fortune was lost in that fire. He'd invested in real estate along the shores of Lake Michigan, and it all literally went up in smoke. Lost everything overnight. He wanted to give his wife and their four daughters a bit of a rest from you know, what had happened. And so he planned a family trip to Europe in 1873. Spafford knew Moody and Sankey, you know, Dwight Moody and Sankey, and they were due to come over and do one of their campaigns in the UK. And uh, so Spafford wanted to come and help. So he thought he'd combine the two things, a family holiday and, you know, helping out on a crusade. So in November, they were set to sail. And uh, due to unexpected last minute business issues, Spafford had to stay behind in Chicago. He sent on his wife and their four daughters as scheduled, um, and he expected to follow a few days later. On the 22nd of November, the ship that his wife and daughters were sailing in collided with a British vessel and sank in 12 minutes. A few days later, the survivors landed in Cardiff. And Mrs. Spafford sent a telegram to her husband saying, saved alone. Because the four daughters had perished in the shipwreck. Spafford left immediately to join his wife. And as he approached the area where it was thought that the ship went down. The ship where his daughters had died. He wrote this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well With my soul. When surrounded by such tragedy, such suffering, such personal loss, he somehow was able to pen words which have brought encouragement and precious strength to generations of Christians. It is the Habakkuk response. When all that around me looks like this, I choose to rejoice. Habakkuk's focus here is on the Lord, his God, who he describes in verse 18 as his salvation and describes in verse 19 as his strength. He goes on to say that he has made my feet like hinds feet or deer's feet and makes me walk on high places. These mountains, these seemingly insurmountable obstacles which surround, become to him places where he can walk. The mountains in Jewish thought were the places of power, often power of evil forces. But for Habakkuk, in this passage, they become for him places where he stands in victory. 
Why? Because there's nothing that can stand against God. Since my dad died earlier this year, I've found myself wanting to sing songs about heaven, about life, and about the future. Why is that? It's not because I'm in denial, okay? Why is that? I think because when I think about what has happened, it is easy for me to get focused on the seeming unfairness of it all. And to be locked into those questions of suffering. And I know I need to walk on the mountains. I want to have my vision so absorbed by God because he is my strength and my salvation. And so there's a deliberate choice to decide to rejoice. And the book of Habakkuk, as we saw those weeks ago, begins with those two questions, doesn't it? The two suffering questions. How long, O Lord, and why? And they're great questions. They're important questions. Habakkuk demonstrated that to us. And it's good to be indignant about suffering. It's good to be real about the pain and the difficulty. It's good to ask deep, raw, searching questions. To bring our difficulties to God. To engage with the Lord of the universe as we wrestle with these big issues. But as we acknowledge our pain and confusion, as we allow ourselves to encounter God, and as he comes close in those questions, I believe he will reveal himself to us. And I think our story might be similar to Habakkuk. Where the how long, O Lord, question led to a response of, I will patiently wait. As we switch our vantage point to looking at things from the end. I think his why question leads to a response of, I will rejoice even though I don't understand. But we have a choice to make when we encounter these difficulties. Have you ever heard the legend of the mignonette and the, the gravel path? Need to get out more. The, 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 there's a picture of the mignonette here. It's a, it's a plant that has greenish spikes and really fragrantly perfumed flowers. And the legend goes like this. One morning, the gravel path said... To the mignonette, how fragrant you are this morning. And the mignonette replied, yes, I've recently been trodden upon and bruised and it's brought forth all my sweetness. And the gravel path replied, but I am trodden on every day and I only grow harder. You see, we've got a choice to make in the middle of our sufferings and our difficulties. As we encounter God, will we choose to rest securely in his sovereign embrace? Will we choose to rejoice in his gracious salvation? Or will we allow ourselves to become hardened to his whisper and turn from his face? Paul 
who suffered so much for the sake of the gospel, writes to the churches in Thessalonica and Philippi, rejoice on occasion. He doesn't. He writes, rejoice always. Always. <laughs> always. And he masterfully writes these words in Romans 8. And we'll finish by thinking about these. In fact, can we stand? Romans 8. I'm going to read 28 to the end of the chapter. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Wow. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's where we're heading. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? No. Or distress? No. Or persecution? No. <laughs> or famine? No. You're allowed to be louder than this. This is good stuff. Or nakedness? No. Or peril? No. Or sword? No. No. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is what happens when our focus is shifted. When we encounter God and we see things from his perspective, we're able to declare truths like that. And nothing can stand against us. But there is a choice to make in that. And that's the challenge, I think, at the end of Habakkuk. Are we going to choose to wait quietly, to rest in his sovereign embrace? And are we going to choose to rejoice in God, who is our strength and salvation. Amen.